Let's ask God to help us with his word. Heavenly Father, we know that all your word is given for our encouragement and instruction. Uh, We pray now as we uh, consider the Ten Commandments that it would help us to trust Jesus as the one in whom we can be right with you. And it would help us to grow in knowledge of your will for us, especially in what it is to love. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus. Amen. Uh, My nan uh, was a regular reader of the Woman's Weekly, and uh, we'd pop over on the weekly visit. When we do that, there'd always be a weekly on hand to fill in the times. And in those days, they had lots of cartoons, so it was worth the read. And, and uh, perhaps only some of you will remember this. They also had those 10 question quizzes to help you work out whether you were really compatible with your boyfriend or what kind of work you should look for or whether your personality really did match the star sign you were born under. Very important to know. 10 questions is a handy format for self-interrogation. Uh, So this morning I want to introduce you to ten questions to engage you with the ten words. The ten commandments that teach us how to love God and love our neighbour. Now these are not perfect questions, others could be asked, but they're a start. Because love is good and it's good to love better, and because we have a loving God whose love we've experienced in being saved through the death of his son, and he calls us, commands us to love in response to his love, I'd encourage you to take this quiz with me, to meditate now with me on God's word and your life with the help of these questions so that you'll become more grateful for the love of the God who loves imperfect lovers perfectly and so that you will learn to love better. But before I run through these ten questions, just a reminder about what is true of the ten as a whole. So firstly, and this is so clear, isn't it? These are the words of the living God. The Lord spoke with you face to face. These words, the Lord spoke to all your assembly. So even though they function as the constitution for the nation Israel, they express the will of our God, spoken directly, the will of the God who never changes. When you go against the intent of one of these words, you are defying the living God. And these words have always addressed the heart, the willing centre of our being. When our Lord appears to radicalise the expectation of the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount by contrasting what was said to the men of old with what he is now saying, he is just fulfilling the law, bringing out what is already there, what These words always looked for the commitment of our hearts to live God's way. Uh, We can see this when we consider the first and the last commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not covet. Obedience to these must start in the heart, these commandments that frame the ten. They look for loyalty and longing, matters of the heart, to be directed to the Lord by the word of the Lord. Conformity to each of the commandments starts in and with the heart. Responding to the living God has never been a matter of mere external conformity, always of wholehearted devotion to his way. And the ten are a complete package. 
Israel could not and we cannot separate love of God and love of neighbour. Words, commandments 1 to 4 from commandments 5 to 10. You cannot love God unless you honour him in loving those he's created in his image, your neighbour. And you cannot love your neighbour unless you honour the Lord, upon whom your neighbour's well-being, his peace, his life depends. Now that was particularly true in Israel where your treatment of others is directed by the one who is Israel's king, the Lord. But it's true of all human society. In fact, the effects of idolatry, worshipping some other god, not loving the true and living God on human society is actually illustrated by Paul in Romans 1, isn't it? A disordering of relationships that brings misery. Consider, for example, just these final verses from Romans where people, he says, did not see fit to acknowledge God and God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And there follows a string of misery. One of the great illusions of our secular Western culture is that you can have love of neighbour without love of the creator God, that you can have the fruit of just human relationships without its root in faith in the living Lord, that you can secure a just and prosperous human society independent of the just God who maintains justice in the earth and who is the source of our being and all of our blessing. So you cannot pick and choose amongst these as to which you will obey or not and still claim to love your neighbour or love your God. They come as a package. And these words are not restrictive anti-human flourishing. In fact, they protect, as we will see, human flourishing. They are particularly framed to protect the freedom of each Israelite to live in and enjoy the land the Lord was giving them by protecting the family. The family was the core institution under God for preservation of the Israelites' freedom as God's people, living under God's rule in God's place, for the family was responsible for passing on God's truth. These commands protect the family's authority, the family's integrity, the family's economic viability. Living this life of love is actually the life of true freedom. So let me introduce you to these 10 questions that will help you start to test the reality of your love of God and love of neighbour. Now these questions, of course, are only a start. This is a you could think of this as a, a kind of tasting menu for the Christian conscience as you come to these ten words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Does the Lord your God have your exclusive loyalty because you cannot love the Lord our God unless we give him exclusive loyalty. We have no other gods, no other competitors with him in his presence, in his sight. And the Lord deserves exclusive loyalty, for he's the God who saves. He's the God who delivered Israel more. As we heard Moses remind Israel, he is the only God. There is no God beside him. He is the only source of our life. And like Israel, the God we give our exclusive loyalty to is the God revealed in saving us. The one God, Father, Son and Spirit. 
Now, how can we know if we are giving our saving God our exclusive loyalty? And the test for that, in a sense, is both confessional and practical. So confessionally, you give him your exclusive loyalty when you confess Jesus as Lord, the only way to the Father, the only one with authority to save. But we can still have an orthodox confession and have other gods in our hearts, can't we? We can put our trust in money and have our lives directed by its pursuit or, well, we can value the opinion of our friends above being loyal to God. So test your loyalty to the Lord, your love of the Lord. Ask yourself, who do I trust for my security? You know, when I'm thinking about retirement or, or when I'm losing my job, do I look to my superannuation or do I actually have confidence in the Lord? Who do I turn to in need? Is it the Lord or is it others? Whose word guides me? Is it the opinion of my friends or the Lord? Whose will do I do? Do I do what pleases me because our nearest idol is ourselves? Or do I do what the Lord says even if I find it hard? Does the Lord have your exclusive loyalty? And is your worship of the Lord consistent with his revelation of himself? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or the earth beneath. You see, the second question flows from the first. You cannot love God if you do not worship him in the way he commands, in the way that is consistent with his revelation of himself. And so the Israelites were specifically forbidden images of God in their worship of him. Dead lifeless, deaf and dumb images are entirely incompatible with the living God, not just because he is invisible spirit, but because he is living, active, hearing, seeing, speaking, saving. And the Lord says that he's jealous both for his reputation and for their exclusive love as his people. He is active, passionately concerned to protect what is right and proper in their relationship with him because he is the living God and not just some dumb human construct. Loyalty and disloyalty, he says, have consequences. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, we often puzzle over that third and fourth generation, don't we? Because we know that God judges each person for their own sin. But the third and fourth generation shouldn't surprise us because we know our actions do have consequences for others, especially in our household. We see the effects of the sin of the heads of households on their families today, even if those households in our society might usually only be two-generation households, parents and children. Uh, we see the effect of the gambler who impoverishes or the adulterer who destroys the stability of his or her home. A normal Israelite household had three to four generations living in it and disloyalty to God will have an effect on the whole household which is misdirected by its head, threatening even its possession, its being in the land. 
Now, what should surprise us is the disproportion. He says he shows steadfast love to thousands, which is most probably to the thousands generation, as we see in Deuteronomy 7. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now, do you feel the contrast? Human society has not existed for a thousand generations. What the Lord is stressing is that his loyal love for his people is inexhaustible, never tiring, never wavering. He's saying, you stick with me and I will stick with you forever. Well, how does our God command us to worship him? What is the worship now that's consistent with his revelation of himself in saving us? Well, it's faith in Jesus. That's the work our God requires. It's following Jesus, loving Jesus above all, seen in doing his will. It's coming to God on the basis of what Jesus has done with the confidence we should have because of the effectiveness of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And it's knowing that we're not to come to him on the basis of our own works, religious or otherwise. Oh, and it's knowing that we are not free to think of God in ways we choose, but only as he's revealed himself in Jesus, that is, Father, Son and Spirit, and in no other way. Oh, and yes, that means in our gathering, our communal worship, we will always prioritise listening to and responding to his word. You see, Jesus, the Son become flesh, is a real man, but we have no description of his appearance, no images, no pictures. What we have, what he has sent into the world, is his word in the words of the apostles. So if we are going to honour him, we meet around his word. We hear his word, we respond to his word with the confident trust that draws near to him in praise and prayer. Are you worshipping God in the way he commands? By trusting and following his son, believing what he has said about himself. And yes, do you give weight to the Lord's reality? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. See, you cannot love God if you treat his revelation of himself as insubstantial. God's name is his revelation of himself, himself as he can be known and called upon. And the word vain here has the sense of empty, worthless, futile, not true. Idols are empty, worthless and futile, but the Lord in his revelation of himself is the exact opposite. He is reality. He is true. And so this command says we're not to associate the Lord with anything that's worthless and empty. In fact, Jesus teaches us, doesn't he, to long for, to pray the very opposite, that God's name would be hallowed, treated with full seriousness for the unique revelation it is of the living God. So this command plainly forbids falsely swearing oaths in the Lord's name, for that's associating the living and true God with our lie. 
But it's also saying that we're not to do anything in word or deed that harms or diminishes the Lord's reputation. So we mustn't trivialise the living God as we see in commercialised religion, with his name associated with people's products and plans for profit. Oh, and yes, there's no place for false prophecy for someone saying the Lord said to me and then just giving their own insights or conjectures. But above all, this command warns against all hypocrisy. For a hypocrite is someone who thinks he or she can use God to further their own purposes, their own personal reputation, as if the living and just God is there to be exploited for personal advancement. His word, just useful decoration to prove your religiosity to a gullible community. See, think about this command. If you want to call yourself a Christian, that is, if you want to associate the Lord and Saviour with your life, and then you feel free to do what pleases you, ignoring what Jesus says and damaging his reputation, say, by your anger or your words or your pride, well, you are taking the Lord's name in vain. You are associating him with something which is wrong and futile and untrue. So are you treating the Lord with the seriousness he deserves? And does the way you use your time show that you trust the one you claim to trust? Let's step back for a minute from debates about Saturday or Sunday and working or not working and recognise that you can't love your God if you don't order your time to do his will. For how you use your time, show, it, show who it is you trust and follow. The Sabbath was distinctive to Israel and expressed their distinctive identity as the people of the Lord. The Lord who, in Exodus, we're reminded as the creator of the whole earth. The Lord who, we're reminded in Deuteronomy, is the redeemer of Israel from slavery. Now, keeping the Sabbath depended on faith that the Lord could provide and protect. And so keeping the Sabbath both expressed and nurtured faith and it reinforced Israel's identity as the people of the Lord. In the restatement of this command on the plains of Moab, there's actually a significant change from its statement in Exodus. Uh, there in Exodus, it's about remembering creation. In Deuteronomy, remembering redemption. You observe the Sabbath by doing no work, it says in Deuteronomy, that your male and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Um, therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath became an opportunity to share the good, rest, that Israel had received from the Lord, even with strangers and with servants. So the Israelites had to order their time to share with those dependent on them, economically dependent on them, the good that God had graciously given them. As Jesus said, the Sabbath was always made for humanity, giving good rest to all. And in this sharing of good, nurturing a life that was considerate of those who were in their power and generous as it remembered the Lord's grace and saving work. 
So do you use your time to share the good the Lord has given you with those dependent on you in your economic power? Is the way you use your time shaped by your faith in the Lord as creator and redeemer, the only source of prosperity and protection, and by your experience of his generous love to you? Who does your use of time show you trust? Now I'm convinced from Romans 14, 5 to 6, that as it says, some believers will regard one day as special and others will regard every day alike. And as it says, we all need to be convinced in our own minds. And we also have to see that the person who regards every day alike is to see every day not as their own, but as a day to honour the Lord. So, as believers, we don't want to suggest by our use of time that our trust is in money or we take our identity from physical fitness or sport because we've prioritised that or our time is given to us to selfishly pursue what we think will enrich us. Some, you see, thinking that their time was their own and not the Lord's, appear to have become enslaved to busyness or money, masters who give no rest. We have to use our time to express and reinforce our identity as believers in Jesus, to express and feed our faith and to share the good we've received in being saved. Now that at least means ordering your life and your family's life to meet with the Lord's people regularly on the time the Lord's people have agreed on as fitting for that. And for most of us, that is Sunday. And it also means ordering your life to rest because we trust, we say, in the God of the whole earth who says he will provide all we need as we seek his kingdom and righteousness. Now rest is not doing nothing. It may well be sharing with other families, reading, visiting the sick, showing hospitality to strangers, being kind and generous as we have experienced God's kindness. But it does mean being free from anxious toil as if you believed you were the source of your own prosperity. Now, ordering your time like that in our society where there are all sorts of pressures on our time won't happen accidentally. It will need reflection and decisions, decisions you have to make as believing families. And they're good discussions to have in your family. But make those decisions and then stick to them. So does the way you use your time Show you trust and love the living God, creator and redeemer. And do you respect the structures the Lord has given you for the transmission of the faith? Now that may seem a funny way to think about honouring your parents, but that's actually what is at stake in honouring our parents both in the Old and the New Testaments. Believing parents are entrusted with transmitting the covenant the gospel of Jesus and what it is to respond to Jesus with faith to their children. And that's the fundamental reason why children should honour their parents. That's why in the Old Testament it going well with them in the land is promised to obedience to this command. Oh, that's why that promise is repeated as you see in Ephesians 6 in the New Testament. Though now, of course, we're looking forward to sharing in our eternal inheritance. Parents are the key means of transmitting the truth of God and relationship with the Lord. And there'll be more of that in Deuteronomy. 
So this command means believing parents will engage diligently and thoughtfully with your responsibilities to teach and model the life of faith to your children. It will be your prime responsibility, not something just slipped in amongst the busyness of life or delegated to Sunday school and youth group, although they can play a wonderful role in the nurture of the faith of our children. And while this command has no time limit, we all of us must continue to honour our parents while they're alive, which includes, as we read in 1 Timothy 5, providing for them if needed. And while how you do it requires a little bit of thought by both parents and children about what happens after you've moved home and started your own family, I primarily want to speak to parents who still have children at home now, and yes, to children if you are still living at home. You see, there's a lot in our culture that suggests that somehow children honouring their parents will squash the expression of their individuality and hold them back from really becoming who they can become. And this is often accompanied with an expectation amongst many that there's a time when parents should just expect their children to rebel that there's a time when it's okay for them to stop listening and do their own thing. Now, if you're either a child or, or the parent of a child at home, if you believe that lie, you will stunt the development of your children as thoughtful adults and poison the life of your family. And you'll be encouraging your children to thumb their nose at the living God. God gives this command for the good of our children and it should be obeyed. Now let me tell you, if you're a child, let me tell you why it's for your good, and let me tell you, if you're a parent, why it's for your children's good that they honour this command in honouring you. You see, God doesn't tell your children to do this because, parent, you are perfect. You probably knew that already, and your husband or wife definitely knew that, right? He's telling you, imperfect parent, that your imperfect child, and you knew that too, should honour you for their good. It is good for them to do that. And that's not just because, generally speaking, you know more than your children. Uh, now, your children may at times doubt that, you know, because you don't know anything about their music. You know, if you're like me, you fumble with technology. Uh, you're probably not like that, parents of this generation, I know. Uh, you know, oh, and, and you don't agree with what their friends think is really important. But generally speaking, parent, you do know more of what matters, like how to enter into and sustain a fulfilling lifelong relationship, how to be a responsible citizen, a thoughtful neighbour, how to get and keep a job, how to run a household. Your children should learn those things from you. But this command is actually good for your children because it is their God-given opportunity to learn self-control and shape their character so that they can grow up to deal thoughtfully with other adults in a world which is actually full, not of teenagers, but of adults, right? In fact, and, and you should encourage your children to think this, when they're teenagers, you know, coming to terms with the hormones and feeling things intensely and coming to a new appreciation of your imperfection, which they will do, you know, working out what they want to be and who they are, you know, when they just want to be left alone with their friends. 
It's at that time that commitment to this command will do the best work in their lives. Because if they're committed to honouring their parents, well, it'll make them learn to listen when they don't want to. It will help them engage and not just grunt when it, well, when they just want to withdraw and think that their life is no one else's business. It will teach them to acknowledge the responsibility others have and therefore the authority they have to direct them. And that's really useful in lots of situations like work. Commitment to this command, if they give themselves to honouring their imperfect parents, will actually be, will help them to be unselfish as you insist, they live in the family and do their share in the family. And you are doing them a great good then because self-control and unselfishness are relational gold. Okay, God, in bringing your children into the family, they are in with the parents that he has given them you. And he was in charge of that. He's actually giving your children the opportunity to get that gold with this command. And so if you can nurture their trust in him so that they'll commit themselves to living his way, honouring their parents, you will do them great good. And it'll not only do their character good, having the privilege of believing parents can do them eternal good if they will listen to you, talk through following Jesus with you and learn to trust and follow him from you. So, trust the Lord. And if you're a child still at home, honour your parents, even, it's, even if it's tough, which it will be from time to time. And if you've still got children at home, encourage your children unashamedly to honour their parents. Because what happens if they don't honour them, if they accept the world's view? Well, they're rejecting God's good provision for them Worse, they are sinning against God. They're actually giving way to that view in life that says, I know better how to organise life than God. And when you think about it, looking at your child, or if you're a child looking at yourself, who else would believe that? Encourage your children to honour their parents. The next four commandments remind us that you cannot love God without loving your neighbour, made in his image as he commands. And they tell us you cannot love your neighbour without doing all you can to protect your neighbour's life, your neighbour's marriage, your neighbour's property and possessions and the integrity of the administration of our society. And I'm just going to run through these very briefly. They are very rich. But are you doing all you can to protect your neighbour's life? You shall not murder. The word translated murder here is a word used to describe any unlawful killing, any taking of innocent human life. So this command doesn't prohibit the killing of animals, nor taking life in war, nor, you, nor judicial punishment, the taking of guilty human life. But our Lord shows us that this command forbids anything that might put our neighbour's life at risk, like the anger that can seek their harm or the verbal abuse that expresses that anger and disdain for their life. We have to deal with our anger when we feel it, recognising the threat it is to others. Instead, we have to urgently promote the peace, the reconciliation that protects the lives of others, so we mustn't let grievances 
fester. <clears throat> so this command calls for a work in our hearts for the practice of good relationships that stems from faith in Jesus. And it tells us that nothing we own or do must put our neighbour's life at risk. So this command calls us, for example, to drive safely and not give way to anger on the road and to keep our car well maintained. Oh, it tells us we must never put our neighbour's life at risk by shoddy work or through sheer thoughtlessness. And so believers in Jesus will maintain our pool fences or put our poisons in properly labelled containers if we're to be guided in love of neighbour by this command. And this command tells us we're to protect the lives of others where we can. It's because of this command that we must always give asylum to those fleeing violence. Nothing we do, including border policies we might endorse, should threaten the life of our neighbours. And it's because of this command too that we're also resolutely against abortion, for which life is more innocent life? than the human life in the womb. Oh, and yes, and it's because of this command, we're reluctant to entrust any with the right to extrajudicial killing, as in some forms of euthanasia. So, how are you going protecting your neighbour's life? And how are you doing protecting your neighbour's marriage? You shall not commit adultery. Safe and secure marriage is so important to the happiness of our neighbours the well-being of children, the stability of a society, especially where the transmission of the covenant is entrusted to parents, as it is in Israel and the Christian community. God in this command is calling us to use his good gift of sex and the differentiation of humanity into male and female in ways that support and sustain marriage. So believers inside and outside marriage will practice sexual self-control. A self-control, our Lord says, starts in our hearts, in what we look on and let ourselves desire. And sex will only be practised in the context God has created for it, the exclusive lifelong union of a man and a woman. You see, to give way to sexual immorality, to practise sexual activity outside that context, is actually to fail in love, never to promote love. And this command says you won't permit the objectification of others in the pursuit of sexual satisfaction. For sex is not for the satisfaction of lust, but for the expression of a one flesh union, a relationship that involves the whole person of those who have given themselves to each other in marriage. So, brothers and sisters, to keep this command, to love our neighbours, we have to learn to think differently about sex from our society. Oh, and yes, this command also tells us we have to make sure that we don't take anything that properly belongs to only husband and wife, whether that's emotional intimacy or making excessive demands on their time that prevents intimacy. So think about what you watch, what you talk about, what you endorse. Are you doing all you can to respect and protect your neighbour's marriage? And do you do all you can to protect and preserve what is your neighbour's? You shall not steal. Now, there are so many ways in which we can rob our neighbour of what's rightfully theirs. But if we're to love them, we should not do anything that threatens our neighbour's livelihood. Instead, we should seek to protect what's theirs. Now, we'll 
turn away example from the obvious things, you know, dishonesty, fraud, embezzlement, burglary, and of course you say. But actually, if you're to love your neighbour according to this command, it also means you won't be lazy in your work. Whoever is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. Because being slack, lazy, is robbing your neighbour of resources and time. And we won't be people who borrow and never return or repay, and we won't treat others' possessions with indifference or common possessions with indifference, but treat them as our own or better. And if we find something they've lost, we'll make the effort, and it's effort, to return it. And we'll make sure that we work honestly to provide for others. And we will keep our word, protecting others from loss for our failure to do what we have committed to. You see, this command, like all the commands, is impossible to keep without trust in the Lord who promises to provide for all we need. You know, theft, dishonesty, laziness amongst his people actually dishonours the Lord. It shames him because it says he cannot be trusted to provide for his people through the means he's provided honest work. Measure your life. How are you going loving your neighbour? And you shall not bear false witness. Just as you can't love your neighbour without... Sorry, I keep forgetting it's there. You, you, just as you can't love your neighbour without protecting and preserving his property, so you can't love your neighbour without protecting his reputation and maintaining the integrity of the justice system. While this command not to bear false witness condemns all lying, it actually has a particular focus on the operation of the courts. Their false witness could lead to loss of life, as we see in 1 Kings 21 with the trial of Naboth, who was falsely accused of treason and executed. You see, if our courts are corrupted, no one's life or property is secure and trust in the community is destroyed. So are you doing all you can to maintain the integrity of the justice system? See, this command tells us that we should never use the law to undermine justice or engage in the legal system to frustrate or deny justice to those entitled to it. And yes, at a personal level, we should never gossip, threaten someone's reputation in their community, school or workplace where they have no opportunity to correct a false charge or statement. We shouldn't be the source or the repeaters of rumours that damage others. We should only speak what we know to be true. To love our neighbour is to do all we can to protect their reputation. And are you a good neighbour because you have abandoned trying to be God? Now to ask are you a good neighbour because you have abandoned trying to be God may seem an unusual way to engage you with not coveting, but it actually goes to the heart of the matter. Covetousness Wanting something that they did not have, wanting to be like God, was the sin of Adam and Eve. This forbidding of coveting is actually the commandment Paul highlights in Romans 7 as being exploited by sin to kill, to bring death. And so here God is addressing a restless evil in our hearts. Now this command is not saying we can't want good and right things we do not have. So if you're unmarried, it's okay to want to be married. If you're without a home, it's okay to want to own a house. If you don't have children, it's okay to want a child. 
But this command is saying you must not want what belongs to someone else and you must not want good things in ways that displace love and trust and obedience to God, putting them before God. You must not envy. You see, the covetous person can't be happy if someone else has what they want, whether it's looks or a family or a good job, and it's destructive. Let me illustrate the difference between longing and covetousness. Let's say there's someone who wants to be married but's not, and then their friend, their best friend, gets married. Well, they might feel at the same time grief at being unmarried, yet also great happiness at their friend's happiness. Now, those mixed feelings are honest and right, but a covetous person will get angry at and be jealous of their friend's new happiness and rage inside at the unfairness that would give good to the friend and not to them. The covetous heart, you see, believes that life should be organised to meet and satisfy their desires and that anything that does not do that is wrong. The covetous heart, you see, embraces the claim to be like God, that life should be organised around them and their needs because they have a right to it all and they believe the true God actually errs in his providential distribution of good. This is the heart of the first sin. Covetous oh, may be unseen by others, but it's most dangerous to individuals and communities. For the envious heart will scheme to get what is not theirs, or at least to rob the rightful possessor of the enjoyment of what they have. Covetousness robs of peace, goodwill and joy. It breaks down trust because it always involves masking the desires of the heart while seeking to act on them. And it gives rise to all kinds of other evils, from unkind words to undermining of others to attempts to attain what we don't have illegally to seeking to destroy the object of our envy. Now, brothers and sisters, we have to resist covetousness because we live in a society which seeks to fuel consumption by inciting discontent with who we are, the way we look, what we possess, and that fueling of discontent comes, comes so close to nurturing envy and covetousness amongst us. So ask yourself, do you delight in the good God gives others, even when it is the good we long for ourselves, whether that's health or looks or wealth? And can we do that? Because we trust God's love for us in his Son. Trust his promise that he'll work all things for our good, that he cares for us. This command calls for the contentment, thankfulness and generosity that comes from trusting Jesus, that comes from daily dying to ourselves, dying to our belief that we are the most important person in our world to confess that Jesus is that one, the one with the right to do with us as he wills and walking in faith in him. Well, ten words from God to inform your love of him and love of your neighbour and ten questions to measure your love, whether you are loving as the Lord says you should. Does the Lord have your exclusive loyalty? Is your worship of God consistent with his revelation of himself? 
Do you give weight to the Lord's reality? Does the way you use your time show you trust the one you claim to trust? Do you, parent or child, respect the structures the Lord has given for the transmission of the faith? Do you do all you can to protect your neighbour's life? Do you do all you can to protect your neighbour's marriage? Do you all you can to protect and preserve what is your neighbour's? Do you do all you can to maintain the integrity of the justice system and your neighbour's reputation? Do you do that all the time? Are you a good neighbour because you have abandoned trying to be God? Now, sometimes self-interrogation, self-examination can be uncomfortable, can't it? Uncomfortably confronting. But when you feel the discomfort, don't minimise God's expectation of his people. He wants your heart, he wants your whole life to be given to love. And we need to hear God's word because we all have the capacity to think we are better than we are more loving than we are. It would be a real shame to give into that willing self-deception because it actually traps us in our own isolating selfishness and it robs us of the goodness of the life that God has called us to, a life where we can lose ourselves in love of him and doing his will. So let me encourage you to engage with God's word, not just now, that God's word would be on your heart. Engage with it and measure your life and love against what he calls for. Reflect on it. And where you fall short, as you do, because I know you do and I know I do, well, confess it and repent. You see, it's good to be humbled in our estimate of ourselves. And this brief survey hopefully has started that. You see, it's good to be humble because Jesus says it's the poor in spirit, not those who are competent in themselves, who inherit his kingdom. It's those who know they fall short of God's standards, who can know the wonder of his love in giving his son for us. And being humbled reminds us we're accepted with God, have our inheritance, our eternal inheritance, not because we are good, but because he is the gracious redeemer of his people. And being reminded of that, you know, frees us to be thankful and to show others the generous kindness our God has shown us in Christ. That humbling facilitates the life of love. So trusting Jesus to be right with God, take the 10-question challenge and grow in the good life of love. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would write this word on our heart, these ten words. We pray that you would give us grace to meditate on them and to delight in them and to be directed in love by them. And we pray in your mercy that they would expose where we have failed in our love of you and love of others so that we might be humbled and turn to your Son and know again your love in giving your Son for us while we are sinners. And knowing this love, we pray we would be renewed in thankfulness and a determination to share your generous love with all. 
We ask this in Jesus' name.